The next large section, chapters 14 through 20, explore all the different expectations people have about the Messiah. So Jesus keeps healing sick people, and twice he even miraculously provides food for these huge crowds in the desert. One is made up of Jewish people, and the other is a non-Jewish crowd. And this sign, it's very similar to what Moses did for Israel in the wilderness. And so all these people are excited about Jesus. They think he's the great prophet and the Messiah, but not the religious leaders. Their view of the Messiah is built on passages like Psalm 2 or Daniel chapter 2 about a victorious Messiah who's going to deliver Israel and defeat the pagan oppressors. And from their point of view, Jesus, he's a false teacher. He's making blasphemous claims about himself. And so there are stories here about them increasing their opposition, hatching a plan to kill him. And so in response, Jesus, he withdraws and he begins teaching his closest disciples what it means for him to be Israel's Messiah because it is not what anybody expects. So Jesus asks his disciples, chapter 16, he says, who do you all say that I am? And Peter comes up with the right answer, it seems. He says, well, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. But then it becomes clear that Peter's thinking about a king who's going to reign victoriously through military power. And Jesus challenges Peter, saying that, yes, I am going to become king, but through a different way. And so Jesus starts to teach on themes from the prophet Isaiah, who said that the messianic king would suffer and die for the sins of his own people. And so Jesus, he was positioning himself as a messianic king who reigns by becoming a servant and who would lay down his life for Israel and the nations. Well, Peter and the disciples, they mostly just don't get it. And so Jesus enters into the fourth block of teaching, followed by a series of teachings after that. And these are all about the upside-down nature of Jesus' messianic kingdom, which turns upside down all of our value systems. So in the community of the servant king, you gain honor by serving others. And instead of getting revenge, you forgive and do good to your enemies. And in Jesus' kingdom, you gain true wealth by giving your wealth away to the poor. To follow the servant messiah, you must become a servant yourself. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So this morning we're reading out of Matthew's Gospel in chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him ten thousand bags of gold was brought to him, and since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. 
The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the the rabbis, the Pharisees of Jesus' day had, had talked endlessly amongst themselves about the topic of forgiveness, and they'd settled on the idea that you, you are responsible for forgiving someone three times. You forgave them three times, and then after that, you were no longer obligated to forgive them if they kept doing the same thing over and over again, right? Doesn't that sound nice, right? Um, so, you know, when we, when we hear Peter come to, to Jesus and he asks, like, okay, God, how many times do I really have to forgive someone? That's what it sounds like, right? It sounds like Peter's saying, okay, like, when can I stop being nice to them? When can I, when can I like, bring down the hammer of justice on this person who's ticking me off, right? But actually, Peter's, Peter's going above and beyond, right? Okay, Jesus, I know that they say three times, should, should we forgive even more than the Pharisees do? And I kind of wonder sometimes, because of who Peter is, if this isn't so much Peter being genuinely good and righteous, and, or is it Peter trying to like show up the Pharisees, right? Like, hey, Jesus, if we forgive them seven times, then we're better than them, and everyone will know it. Right? And that, that, to me, fits with Peter's personality, right? He's going to show up the other holy people. But nonetheless, right, the, the, the seven times for them is, is, is really generous because everyone else is thinking, you just forgive him three times and then after that, it's over. You're done. You don't need to forgive him anymore. But Jesus actually does something really different. Jesus removes any and all limits on forgiveness. When he says you have to forgive them 77 times, he's not... He's not quoting just a random number. He's actually making a really sneaky Old Testament reference. All the way back in Genesis chapter 4, there's the story of Lamech, who is one of Cain's descendants. And when Cain kills Abel and he's you know, cast out, he has to go make his own way in the world, he's, uh, he's worried. Right? He calls out to God, Lord, if I go out there and everyone knows what I did, someone's going to try and kill me too. And God says, no, don't worry, I'll protect you. And if anyone, if anyone harms you, I will avenge you sevenfold. And that's how the story goes. And, and so a few paragraphs later, one of his descendants named Lamech is boasting to his wife that, yeah, you heard that, someone, that Cain will be avenged seven times, but I, if someone even touches me, I will avenge myself 77 times. The key difference being that God would avenge Cain, but he's avenging himself. But also this number, the, the idea, I'm going to avenge myself 77 times, it's a symbol for unlimited vindictiveness. 
unlimited vengeance, unlimited retribution. And so Jesus is referencing back to this story and saying, yeah, you heard about this evil character who has unlimited vindictiveness, but I am charging you, my disciples, to be a people of unlimited forgiveness. Unlimited grace. And that's a hard thing for us. We, we tend to think that to forgive is to submit. If you forgive, you're, you're showing weakness. We're fine forgiving someone when it's like an easy thing to forgive them, but um, when someone has done something that truly upsets us, that's truly hurtful, we refuse. We, we tend to think, well, if we forgive them, we're just letting them get away with it. How can we expect them to learn the error of their ways if we don't get some sort of retribution, if we don't hold a grudge? If we just forgive them, how will they know? <clears throat> On June 17th, 2015, a young man walked into Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina, and he started shooting. And by the time he was done, he had murdered nine people in cold blood. People who had welcomed him into their Bible study and, and sat with him, read the Bible with him, and he gunned them down. And he was captured not all that later. He admitted to being a self-proclaimed white supremacist, and he admitted that his goal had been to start a race war. He hoped, he expected that his act of violence and hatred would inspire more violence and more hatred. He hoped the families and the friends of the people he murdered in cold blood would be just like him, that they would then go out and find a group of innocent white people to kill, and that the cycle of violence would begin to spin out of control. And he had every reason to think it would work. This was 2015. The events in Ferguson were not that far off. He had already seen multiple times throughout his life that, that racially motivated violence could ignite an explosion of even bigger violence and riots and unrest. It had happened time and time and time again. But he didn't get what he expected. Because you see, our brothers and sisters at Emmanuel AME Church and their families are faithful men and women of God. And because they knew that the way you defeat Satan is not to respond in kind. It's to forgive. 48 hours. Just 48 hours after they had lost their mothers, their sisters, their sons, their daughters, their husbands and wives, they were in the court for the murderer's bond hearing. And they were given the chance to confront him. And instead of condemning him, instead of uttering all sorts of hatred towards him, they forgave him publicly. 
with cameras in the room and everything. They forgave him. They didn't plan it. They didn't get together the night before and say, let's all do this. They simply did what they knew in that moment Jesus would do. So he didn't get the cycle of violence and hatred that he wanted. The response was exactly the opposite. This is why Jesus removes all limits on forgiveness. Because forgiveness is not easy. And forgiveness is not weakness. I defy you to go watch the video of those people looking their loved one's murderer in the eye and forgiving him and call them weak. That is not weakness. That is the most incredible strength. That is the strength that crushes evil. In other communities, in other cities, when similar crimes were committed before and after, there was an eruption of violence and unrest, but not in Charleston. Because there, men and women of God, the first thing they did, and they did it publicly in, for anyone to see, was to forgive the murderer. To offer him grace. They demonstrated the greatest act of love anybody could possibly show. And that's what Jesus wants. A people who forgive, not just when it's easy or safe, but when every fiber of their being is crying out for vengeance and justice. Forgiveness like that is what changes the world. And it changes us too. And so we get to the end of this passage and, and there's this kind of terrifying bit where Jesus says, by the way, if you don't forgive people, God won't forgive you either. And at first glance, that seems to kind of fly in the face of the rest of the gospel. And, and it makes us wonder because it sounds so harsh and, and, and many of us have been, have been hurt or deeply scarred or traumatized and we have to wonder, I mean, would that apply to a, a victim of domestic violence or child abuse? Can God really expect that person to forgive their abuser? And can God really withhold his forgiveness if they don't do it? Do we really think that if the families of those murder victims had refused to forgive the murderer, that God would have then refused to forgive their sins? What about more mundane problems that we can relate to? Right, Many of us, in this room have been deeply wounded by people. We've been cheated out of money. We, we've, some of us have marriages have been shattered by infidelity. Lives have been taken from us, not intentionally, but even just through negligence or stupidity. Sometimes people we love simply reject us or cut us off in, in ways that cause us more pain than they can know. Sometimes people just annoy the bejesus out of us and won't leave us alone, right? We all have something we need to forgive people for. Are we really supposed to forgive them without limits? on pain of not being forgiven by God. <clears throat> the issue is not that God will, will just withdraw his offer of forgiveness unless you extend one. That's not how it works. This actually has to do with the way that the human heart is made and the way that forgiveness works. If we are unwilling to forgive others, we are incapable of receiving forgiveness. And vice versa, if we are unwilling to receive forgiveness, 
we are incapable of offering it to others. And there's all kinds of reasons why we might be unwilling to receive it. Sometimes we, we simply don't think we deserve it. Sometimes we don't think we need it. But either way, we have closed off the pathway. And when we're unwilling to receive forgiveness, we're also then in denial about how much we need it. If you want to know how it is possible for someone to look into the eyes of the man who just murdered their mother in cold blood in her church Bible study and offer him forgiveness, the answer is that is a person who knows deep in their bones just how much God has forgiven them for and what it costs him to do so. We are designed in such a way that we cannot simply choose to only receive or only give. Forgiveness is a package deal. If you aren't open to receiving it, you cannot give it. If you cannot give it, you aren't open to receiving it. You have to do both. And when you begin to open yourself up to receiving that forgiveness from God, you begin to actually recognize just how much you need God's forgiveness in the first place. This is what changes you. This is what makes it possible for you then to go out and offer that forgiveness to others. This is precisely why forgiveness is such a healing thing, so much so that even non-Christians recognize that to forgive is to heal yourself. It's not just that it's a nice thing to do. It's not just that it smooths over attention or helps other people. It's that the act of forgiving is like removing a dam. And once it's gone, the river of life comes flooding through. Even we who are lifelong Christians will tend to think of forgiveness as an act of weakness or submission or giving up or going easy on the bad guys. Because that, my friends, is exactly how Satan views it. That's how evil views it, which is evil can't comprehend forgiveness, which means evil never sees it coming. That young man who murdered nine people in cold blood could never have imagined that he would be offered forgiveness and grace for it. And I'm willing to bet he still doesn't totally understand what happened. He still hasn't wrapped his mind around how that was possible. Evil can't comprehend forgiveness. Because forgiveness is not weakness. It's not submission. Forgiveness is victory. Forgiveness is triumph. It is the ultimate weapon against evil precisely because evil never sees it coming. Imagine for, for just a moment that you are one of the soldiers nailing Jesus to the cross. And you hear him crying out to God to forgive you even as you are driving the nails in. Do you really think those men weren't changed by that? Do you think that when the apostles later came out of hiding and were preaching in the streets, that those men weren't among the crowds begging for forgiveness, seeking out 
the salvation offered by the man they had just hung on a tree. I cannot imagine that those men were not forever changed by that moment. Because I can guarantee every other time they had done that to someone. They were either being cursed as they did it or hearing someone beg for mercy, but no one was crying out to God to ask him to forgive them for what they were doing. I guarantee they were changed forever from that moment on. A fundamental tenet of our faith is that Jesus died on the cross for you. Not collective you, but, but individually, personally for you. Had you been the only sinner to ever live, if every other human being who had ever been born was perfect and flawless and you were the only one who messed up, Jesus would still have gone willingly for his death for you. This, this is the depth of God's love and forgiveness for us. And knowing that, how can we possibly ever justify withholding forgiveness from someone else? Jesus says, no. No, you don't get to withhold forgiveness. In fact, you were designed in such a way that if you withhold forgiveness, you don't get it. He's taken away the other options. You either offer forgiveness and receive it, or you leave it aside altogether. When you forgive, you open yourself to forgiveness. And when you open yourself to forgiveness, you give more forgiveness. It creates a cycle, the exact opposite cycle of what that murderer wanted to create in 2015. Instead of a cycle of violence and hatred, it is a cycle of grace and mercy and love. We are called to be a people of unlimited forgiveness. Because forgiveness, my friends, is how we defeat evil. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.